Hey, good morning, everybody. So glad you're here. My name is Jared. I'm excited to get to be a part of this series with you and share this morning. Um, we've been, uh, if, if you've not been with us, we've been going through the book of Revelation at the beginning where uh, Jesus is writing letters to churches that are existing uh, at this time and going through different circumstances. And uh, it's got me a lot thinking about church and what it means to be a part of a church. And uh, I don't know about you, I grew up in the church, some of you may be new to it, but if you are a part of a church for a little while at least, you'll start to, to gain some great stories and some great memories. Some of them are super uh, awesome moves of God in your life. Some of them are just hilarious stuff. And as I was thinking about my life and my, my time in church, I hate to tell you the, one of my most favorite memories is not something super uber spiritual, but it's actually a hilarious thing that happened. And so I, I, I want to share it with you this morning because I think it's fun to share funny stories. And so uh, I remember growing up and uh, during this time there was a, um, a revival happening in Browns, out of Brownsville, Florida. Anybody remember that? And God was kind of doing some amazing things, really pouring his presence out on churches all over our country. And I remember um, this happened at our church. And uh, so we were having services every night. The, uh, tons of people were, were giving the heart to Jesus. People were uh, being healed of sickness. And um, we, we, were, uh, we were at church all the time seeing God do incredible things. And one of the things that was happening during this time is people were being overcome by the presence of God when they were being prayed for, sometimes to the point where they couldn't even stand up. And so you would have people in the church who were, who were kind of their job was to help catch people if they were prayed for and, and, uh, and couldn't stand anymore. And so my dad, and, and by the way, as a kid, that was always the job you dreamed of. You're like, one day I'm going to be a catcher. <laughs> if I play my cards right and I really work hard, I'm going to be a catcher one day. Um, and, and so my dad was doing that. And I remember one of these services, he was going around and, and he was helping people as they were being prayed for. And, and um, as a catcher, one of the things I learned in my training, I never quite got there, but in my training is you cannot discriminate against who you catch. If it's a 500-pound, 6'5 dude, you got to catch him no matter how big you are, right? And, uh, and so my dad's going around, he's catching people. And, and my little sister comes up who's like 65 pounds at her heaviest a tiny, and he comes up, and as, as she gets prayed for, sure enough, he, he gets ready, she starts going down, he gets ready to catch her, and as he does, all the muscles in his back just seize up. So as he's catching her, he himself also slowly falls to the ground in pain, and then starts making moaning noises because he's in so much pain. Normally, had this happened, everybody in the church would be like, oh, what's going on? Let's come help you, right? But because what was going on in the service where other people were, were going down, everyone thought, wow, God's really moving powerfully on him. <laughs> and so literally people would come by, and he was moaning in pain, wanting help, and everyone was just like, give him more, Lord. Give him more. Yes, God, pour it out on him. You know? And, and uh, he's like, no, no more. <laughs> Please, no more. And, uh, and so the night goes on, and finally he gets a hold of my mom who's also at the service, and he's like, you got to get me some Advil for my back. My mom's like, I can't ask people for Advil in the middle of a healing service. Like, you don't want to be that guy, right? Like, hey, God's moving, but anybody got us some, uh, some pain meds? Um, so, so finally she gets some, and he, he's there for hours by the time his muscles get relaxed enough. And my uncle and I were there, and we were able to lift him up. We had to put his arms around our shoulders. And as we're carrying him out of the church, people still don't realize that he's thrown his back out. So they're like, wow, praise God, give him more. You know, and we're just laughing. We're like, no, 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 this is not what you think it is. Uh, church, man, being a part of a church is something special. And, um, and I'm thankful for this series. I'm thankful for this letter we're going to read today because it's Jesus talking to his church about his heart for that church. 
And even though this letter was written a long time ago, the message that Jesus has for this church, I think, is really applicable for us today. And so I'm going to encourage you to lean in this morning as we have a conversation about this letter to the church of Pergamum, because here's what I believe. The Holy Spirit wants to speak to us. He wants to speak to you as an individual, but he also wants to speak to us corporately as, uh, about what he's called us to be here at Trinity, what he's called us to be in our community. And so I'm going to read in, in the book of Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start at uh, verse 12. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, we'll have it up on the screen for you. I'm going to read, then we're going to pray. Here's what it says. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you that this letter, which was written thousands of years ago, is still applicable and relevant to us today. That the message you had for them also you have for us this morning. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would open up our hearts to hear from you. That you would show us the areas of our life that are not aligned with who you are and what you've called us to. That you would challenge us, God, to love you more, to trust more in the gospel, and to accomplish your mission in a greater way. That's our heart today. Help us be a church that is light in the midst of darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. So we're going to be talking about this letter that Jesus writes through John to the church of Pergamum. And um, what we're going to see is this is a church who was fighting some battles. And in fact, I think as we read this uh, letter and, and break it down a little bit, I want to share with you three battles that I think Jesus makes evidence, evidence to us this morning. Uh, one is going to be the outside battle. The second we're going to talk about is the inside battle. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about the ultimate battle. So the outside battle, the inside battle, and the ultimate battle. And so the first thing is, uh, that we see is the uh, outside battle. And uh, in this letter, Jesus first off starts to commend the church of Pergamum. Now here's what you should know about Pergamum. It was a very interesting city. One of the things that it was known for was it was an intellectual city. It was filled with intellectuals. It had the second largest library in the entire known world only second to Alexandria. So people there were uh, almost all literate. They all read. They, they all um, uh, valued education and culture. It was a big part of who they were. That was the culture there. But what also was interesting about Pergamum was they weren't just an intellectual culture. They were also a very spiritual culture. They had multiple temples to all different types of gods like Zeus and others. And oftentimes in these temples there would be all sorts of rituals that they would do um, in order to appease these gods and offer sacrifices and, and things like that. So they were this, this very spiritual culture. But a third thing that made Pergamum very interesting and, and unique is they were the very first city to erect a massive temple for emperor worship. So they would actually worship whoever Caesar was. They would worship the ruler 
of their land. So they had this, this kind of unique combination of being an intellectual place, a culture place, but also a spiritual place where they believed in all these different things. And then also they would worship their political leaders. In fact, once a year, they would all be required to offer sacrifice in honor of worshiping their ruler as a god, as a deity. So what this translates to is, this is a very difficult place to be a follower of Jesus. Everything that is the heart of Christianity, the idea that there's just one God and only He is worthy of our worship, all of those things, all those ideas that the culture held were in opposition to Christianity. So to be a follower of Jesus meant that you had to disagree and go against all of the culture that was around you. This was an incredibly tough place to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, so tough that in this letter, he mentions to them two times, this is the place where Satan dwells, right? Some of you, if you have kids, you thought that place was their bedroom. But no, this was the place where Satan dwells among some. So he's, he's making a mention to how rough, how terrible this place is. And he says, I want to commend you, church, for not giving up on your faith in spite of persecution, in spite of the fact that many of you could lose everything you have, including your life. You've not given up your faith. And he mentions this, this character, this man named Antipas, which we don't know a ton about, but legend has it that basically he was executed in front of people publicly, and, and they believe he was either boiled alive or cooked alive in front of people simply because of his Christian witness. This was not a fun place to be a follower of Jesus, and it certainly was not an easy place to be a follower of Jesus. And so God comes and says, I want to start off by commending you for keeping your faith. And one of the things, what, what, what that means is it shares with us that the gospel is more important and valuable to us than anything else, even our own lives. That's, the, that's what God is saying here. The message of the gospel, our belief in who Jesus is and our faith in what he's done for us, is more important than anything else in the world, including our own lives. So if there ever was a time in your life where you had to uh, risk your life to stand up for the gospel, it is worth even losing your life for the proclamation of the gospel. That's how important Jesus is, the message of who he is. And, and right now, there are people in the world who are living in cities and places that are very much like Pergamum, where just to be a follower of Jesus means they're risking their very lives and the lives of their families. One of the things I love about, we talked about giving earlier and how generous this church is. One of the things I love is we support missionaries who are in countries that we can't even mention because of the risk level that they face each and every day just trying to be a, be a follower of Christ. That's a reality for other parts of this world. And one of the warnings and, and challenges I think that God gives us is we could, we may at some point in your life face that same test, right? And it's worth risking everything for the sake of the gospel. It's more important. As I was preparing for this, though, I, I, I kind of was challenged in my own heart and convicted because one of the things I think happens in the American church in particular, because of some of the, the, the blessing that we have and that we're not risking as much as other places, is that we sometimes take things that are not the gospel and we elevate them to the level of the gospel, and then we fight for those things as if they were as important as the gospel. And I'll give you an example. I remember my first church I worked at, um, it was a little more conservative than Trinity. I, had to, I was a pastor. I had to wear a suit every Sunday. It was terrible. It was torture. God bless you, suit lovers. But, um, but we, were, we, were in this, we were in the service one day, and I remember noticing a man walk in from the back. Service had already started, and he sat in like one of the back rows. 
And he, he is a visitor. He'd never been there before. And I remember um, looking over, and it wasn't long. He was wearing a baseball hat. And it wasn't long that one of our ushers went over, walked down, and kind of leaned down to him and was whispering something in his ear, having a conversation. And uh, about 30 seconds later, the man got up, walked out the back door, and out the front, and never came back. And I remember being like, what, what happened? What, what's going on? So I went up to him after the service, and I said, hey, what, what happened with that guy? I saw you talking to that guy. And, um, and, and this usher was a very nice man. He loved Jesus. He had good intentions. But what struck me was, as he started to tell the story, he told it in such a way as though he had just fought a great, worthy battle and been victorious. Like he had done something awesome for God. Right? And he said, well, I went up to him. I noticed he was wearing a hat. And so I went up to him and I said, sir, you can't wear that hat in, this, in the house of God. That's disrespectful. So if you want to be here, you need to take your hat off. And then sure enough, he said, so he got up and left. But he didn't say it in a way where he was disappointed and crushed or regretful that he had done that. He said it in a way as though he had drawn a line in the sand, a battle line, and it was a worthy fight. And even though the guy had left, it was a worthy fight that he had stood up for something powerful. He stood up for the gospel. And surely God would be pleased. If God was writing a letter to him, he would have given him honor just like he did the church of Pergamum. And I remember thinking to myself, wow. Here this guy has now missed out on the opportunity to actually hear the gospel, hear who Jesus is, because someone took their personal preference of what's appropriate and not, elevated to level the gospel, and fought that battle instead of fighting the battle for this guy's life and future and fighting for the gospel. And we can sit back and go, how could he do that? But honestly, we do it all the time. We all have things in our life that, we, that are not to the level or power of the gospel, that we elevate to that and we fight for those things. And how many know social media makes it a whole lot easier? The idea that we can just type out our thoughts, no matter what the consequences are, is kind of destructive if we're not careful. How many of you have been in your house and you're like, oh my gosh, I just had the most brilliant thought. I just need, the world needs to know what I'm thinking right now. Right now I need to say this. I'm just going to put it out there. I don't care who knows, you know? And, and, and we, almost feel self, we almost feel righteous in our endeavor. Like, this is a word of truth that I just thought of, you know? And so whatever the thing is, maybe right now it's politics, right? And you, you feel strongly one way or the another about, about the presidency or where our country's going. And maybe you're filled with a lot of fear or maybe you're filled with a lot of hope. But what ends up happening is we take our political beliefs we take our personal preferences, and we think they're so important that everyone knows where we stand, that we draw battle lines all around us, dividing us from other people, and we declare to the world, here's what I think, here's what I know, here's what I believe, and if you disagree, you're my enemy, and I'm going to go to battle with you. And, I, and I'm not mentioning anybody in this church because I, I don't know your social medias. I'm just saying in general, I've seen so many followers of Jesus post things on social media who I'm sitting there going, don't you realize they're brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with what you're saying and the way that you're dismissing and talking about them and the way that you're dishonoring them, like this is your family. These are people that you're more united to in Christ than any difference that you could ever have. And yet, and yet all over the American church now, we see a church who has lost its potency because what the world sees is the things we fight for is not the gospel. It's not loving people and fighting for, fighting for those who don't know Jesus. What they see us fighting for is politics and culture and our personal preferences and whatever conviction we have. If we mistake the outside battle and put something that's not the gospel in place of the gospel, we risk losing our potency. 
So Jesus says, hey, you fought the outside battle, but then he goes and transitions and he says, I want to talk to you about the inside battle. And he goes on, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan there is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. And you jump down to, to verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, if not, I will come soon to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So what's he talking about here? He says, he says, I'm happy that you stood up to me publicly. I'm happy that you battled the outside culture for the gospel. But what I'm really concerned about is what's happening internally. And what he's referencing there with Balaam and Balak is this story in the Old Testament that the Jews would have known for sure. It was a part of their history where the Israelites, uh, there was a king who was very afraid of the Israelites and wanted to defeat them. And so what he did is he hired a man to curse them. And as this man is on his way to curse the Israelites, God intervenes. He says, don't curse them. And he actually ends up blessing them and refuses to do it. So the king sends him away. And as he's leaving, he says to the king, you know, if you really want to get them, what you should do is send your women in to tempt them. Because once they have relationships with your women, all of a sudden they'll start to adopt your culture. And one by one, the dominoes will fall where the things that used to make them distinct, where God had called them to be separate, all of a sudden they'll no longer be separate. And before you know it, you'll destroy them from the inside out. It was kind of wise, right? Because the king was saying, let's destroy him from the outside. Let's have this curse. Let's have this battle, this physical battle. He's like, no, no, don't do that. You don't have to lose a single troop. All you got to do is send your women in and tempt them. Because the biggest battle that they will face is not the battle outside, it's the battle within. The thing that can most corrupt them and most destroy them is not what's outside. It's not those threats. It's the threats that we allow inside. It's the sin that creeps into our personal lives. It's the things that we compromise, the things that we know we shouldn't do but we start to do and we start to justify them. That's the stuff that starts to poison and rot away our soul and separate us from God where we no longer hear his voice, we no longer make a distinction between right and wrong. And before we know it, we could spend our whole life fighting battles outside and losing the one in our own hearts. Can I, can I share with you, like take it from me, if someone who... Uh, from 18, I went to Bible college after four years, graduated at 21, spent from that point until now 35, my entire adult life in full-time pastoral ministry. So basically my job is to teach and preach and talk about Jesus. Take it from me, you can spend your whole life teaching and talking about Jesus and not know Jesus. It's possible to have moments in your life where you're defending him and you're fighting battles that you think are matter and are important, but all the while, his spirit is distant from yours. His voice is quiet. It's possible. So Jesus goes on and says, you're becoming like those. And then, and then he mentions, he says, there's people in your church who are holding and teaching the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And what this, what this was is a group of people who basically taught the idea that when you, when you uh, uh, have the grace of Jesus, when you become a Christian, you can live however you want. It doesn't matter. Because grace is sufficient, so you can do whatever you want. You can live however you want. And so in this church, you can imagine Pergamum all around them were, were um, sexual idolatry and practices, temple worship with prostitution, and all kinds of crazy stuff that was happening, immoral things that God had called them to not be a part of and to be separate from. And yet these people were in the church saying, it's okay to do all of those things. 
You can be a part of those pagan rituals and feasts and, and, um, and, and don't worry about whatever things you think God has told you to do because he has grace and his grace is sufficient so do whatever you want. Just enjoy life however you want. There's no distinction between you, the church, and the culture. And God is saying to them, you, you're allowing people to teach this in my church. And what it is, is it's a distortion of the gospel. And I will not allow it to happen. And, and I, was reading, I was reading this, and, and to be honest with you, um, I was convicted as I was preparing for this message. Because here's what I realized, how many things in my life have I started to determine truth, not based on the word of God, but based on culture? How many areas of my life do I think, well, this is, how do I decide what's appropriate and what not, what's not appropriate? How do I decide what's right and what's wrong? There's a lot of areas of my life, if I'm honest, I'm not looking to this to determine that. I'm looking to the news. I'm looking to culture, to social media. I'm looking to what celebrities say. I'm looking to what my friends or people that I respect say or think. How many areas in our life do we do that where we no longer look into the word of God to find and discern what truth is, but instead we allow culture to dictate to us what right and wrong is, what truth and, and lies are, and we believe those things. And before we know it, we start to compromise and go, eh, it doesn't really matter. It's okay. God forgives me. I don't need to worry about that stuff. These people are doing that. Who, who really cares? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. you got to understand. I've, I've called you to be separate. I've called you to come out and live differently and the, the, the arbiter of truth, who decides what's true and right for you, is not culture, which changes constantly. It's not politicians. It's not celebrities. It's not your best friend. What determines truth is the word of God. It's the gospel. And it doesn't change. I, I remember so much of my life in Christianity, I thought about sin and righteousness and holiness in this way, that God was up there and he had this checklist of stuff I shouldn't do. And most of the stuff I shouldn't do were all fun things that I wanted to do. It was like, God, you're really boring, right? And, um, and he was just arbitrarily up there like, hmm, I want to have a faithful people who are really bored and live lame lives. And so he's, and, and, and the idea was like, if you did all the things that he wanted you to do and didn't do the bad stuff, then he would be happy with you. He'd give you a better life. Maybe you'd have a better job, make more money or whatever. And then if, if you really messed up a lot, or at least if you messed up more than your neighbor or your friend, then he would punish you, he'd be mad at you, and bad stuff would happen. And this was how I thought for a very long time about God's definition of sin and holiness and righteousness. And I would read the Old Testament and hear where he's calling Israel to be separate, a separate people. Right In the world, not of the world. And I thought, well, that's what it's about. God just has these arbitrary rules. But in reality, that's not at all what being separate from culture is about. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God is that God has designed us and made us. And therefore, that means that there's a way in which we should operate in order to have the most health and the most blessing in our life. In the same way that Henry Ford made the first car, it wasn't designed to be driven into a lake. <laughs> If you drive into the lake, it no longer works. That's not the design. God has designed us for his mission to know him and to worship him. He's designed us to be in relationship with each other in community. When we operate outside of his design, there are consequences to that, natural ones. And if you don't believe me, we can look at the very source, the first time God really introduces sin, right? In Genesis, he talks to Adam and Eve and he says, don't eat from that tree. And a lot of times we think what he says is, if you eat from that tree, I will kill you. But it's not what he says. He says, if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. It's a difference, right? 
He's saying there's consequences to you living outside of how I've made you and designed you. And so when we think about things in our life like marriage and relationships, we don't, we don't gain our truth on how we should be a married couple or how we should be friends with each other, or how we should be a church on what the world says or culture around us. We don't look to celebrities as if they're some great example on a healthy marriage. We look to the Bible. We look to his word, right? That's how we define truth. And sin and righteousness and holiness is not God trying to get one over on you or prevent you from having fun. It's God telling us how he's made us to be healthy and whole as his people. If we trust and believe in the gospel, then we can trust and believe that he wants the best thing for us. And therefore, when it comes to the things in our life that are not of him, we can lay those down because we know he's got our best interests in mind. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going, to, we're going to come to a close here in a moment. I want to encourage you, though, this morning. We've talked about the outside battle. We've talked about the inside battle. Maybe some of us this morning, God is speaking to our hearts. Maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting you, and there's some things in your life that you've allowed to come in, some compromise. Maybe some things that you're participating in. Maybe it's uh, unhealthy relationships. Chips, whatever, you know the areas of your life, but maybe you've allowed compromise to seep in. Little things that over time you've dismissed and said, it's not a big deal. It won't, I'll be fine. I'll get a hold of it. Nobody else knows about it, but it's stuff that's creeping inside of you and working its way through. And what Jesus is saying to us this morning is, don't allow it. Don't allow the belief that this doesn't matter because the threat to you more than the outside is the inside. And I believe one of the beautiful things about being a church and a community is that we have each other to bring ourselves to and to confess, right? And to say, here's what I'm struggling with. So this morning, if you're here and the Holy Spirit's just challenging your heart and saying, there's areas of your life that don't align with my word. There's places in your life that you're looking to the outside to define truth instead of me. Find somebody. Let's be, in, let's be in community together and love on each other and say, God, I want to root this out because it's so important for me to be healthy and be the person that you want to be. Amen? Can we do that this morning? Can we commit to that? So Jesus talks about the, the outside battle. He talks about the inside battle. And finally, he talks about the ultimate battle. And we come down to verse 17. And he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And what he's talking about there is those who conquer in their faith in the gospel, their faith in Jesus, I will provide hidden manna, which is an image, right, of his sustenance, his sustaining presence. You remember in the Old Testament where the Israelites are in the desert and he provides manna every day, right? It's the idea that God will provide for us. God is saying, if you stay faithful to the gospel, I am your provision. I will be your provision. And he goes on and says, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. What he's saying here is, number one, the stone is white, meaning this, it's a representation of purity, of righteousness, of holiness, that those who stay faithful in the gospel, I will make right and have made right before the eyes of God. See, Jesus is pointing to himself in this moment. On the cross, Jesus took on our sin and our brokenness and our struggle. Whatever that thing is that the Spirit's convicting your heart of today, the price for that has been paid already on the cross. Your guilt and your shame has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. He's taken on himself and then he's imparted onto you and I perfection. That's what the white stands for, purity. That when God looks on us right now from, from heaven, 
What he sees is not a broken, sinful creature. What he sees is a perfect and holy, righteous son and daughter because of the work of Christ. But he says it's a white stone. And what the stone represents is the fact that it's, it's unending. It's unbreakable. It's eternal, right? So this purity and this righteousness is not just lasting until you mess up again, but it lasts forever. When your faith is in Jesus, it's secured for all of eternity. That's the good news of the gospel, that he's rescued us forever. And then lastly, he says, on this stone is going to be a name. And what this means is, in this culture, to be named by someone was the greatest sense of intimacy, that they knew you, but it was also a giving of identity. And so Jesus said, not only am I going to rescue you and save you, but I'm going to give you and grant you a new identity. You're going to be a new person in me, and I will know you in such an intimate way. I want to have fellowship with you. I want to, I want to be with you. This is not some distant God that's far off that you've got to just say, man, I'm trying to please him. I don't want to make him angry. No, no, This is a God who wants to know you and be with you and have a heart and a conversation. He wants to speak to us. He wants to spend time with us. He loves us and cares about us. Every detail of every moment of our lives. This is a God who wants us to have the life he desires for us. And it's a good life and it's a blessed life. Even in the midst of persecution, we can find joy and peace because of the work in person of Jesus. That is the gospel. And so Jesus is saying, if you stay faithful to me, if you put your faith and trust in the gospel, you can be reminded that I have already fought and won the ultimate battle. And you know why that's good news? It means today if you're sitting here in the, and you're challenged by realizing you've been fighting some, some outside battles that don't really matter, you're like, man, I need, to, I need to make a change. Or maybe you're sitting here and there's some inside battles that, that, that you're feeling convicted of. The beautiful thing about the gospel is how do we deal with those things in our life? Well, the answer is not that we go out and try to fight harder. The answer is that we remind ourselves that the fight's already been won. That in Jesus, on the cross, in the gospel, the ultimate battle has been won which means any other minor battle requires only for us to look to the ultimate battle. It requires only us for a look to the victory, look to the cross, and say this has been won in Christ. So when I feel tempted to go another way, when I feel tempted to trust other things, I can remind myself I don't need to look, I don't need to wander, I don't need to trust. I have what I need in Jesus. I have what I need in the cross. His battle is worth looking to every moment of every day. And can I tell you this? Jesus closes out. Notice, notice what he says. We already read this, but he says, if, if you will, he said, therefore repent, and if not, I will come to you soon, and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. What does that mean? That sounds kind of violent, right? But actually what he's saying is, the sword of his mouth is the word. It's the gospel. And what he's saying is, if, if you don't, trust and believe in the truth because I so love you and care for you I'm going to come to you and I'm going to confront you with reality I'm going to confront you with truth because I don't want you living a lie see here's the truth our biggest battle is believing the gospel in every area of our life whatever your sin is whatever your struggle is whatever your hopelessness is it's rooted in the fact that there's areas in our life that we don't trust and believe in the gospel and this morning here's what I think the spirit wants to say to us would you look to me? Would you trust me more than you have before? Let me fight your battle because I've already have and I've already won. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? I'd love to pray for you guys. 
Maybe this morning we could take a moment and you could ask the Holy Spirit to say, God, would you show me an area of my life? Maybe there's something that I've elevated to the level of the gospel that shouldn't be there. Maybe there's an area of sin in my life where I've not, I've not lived according to how God wants me to. Jesus, we don't want to leave this place unchanged this morning. We don't want to believe this place the same as when we came. We don't pursue holiness and righteousness, God, to get your grace. We pursue it because we have your grace. We pursue it because we have your love. And out of your love, we desire to live for you and honor you. So I pray for every person in this room this morning. I pray for those who are watching online, God. I pray that you would show us the areas of our life that are not in line with you, that you would reveal and convict our hearts to say, God, we so love you. We so are moved by what you've done and the power of the gospel that we want to align every area of our life to you. God, we want our heart to be about your heart. We want our mission to be about your mission. We want us to have more care and love for the people around us than we do for political parties or personal preferences. God, we want to have more care and love for holiness and righteousness and and living different than we do for what culture says or what culture values. Help us today, God, believe in the gospel in those areas. Help us to look to you more in those areas. Help our love for you to move us to have real change and transformation so that we could pursue you and be like you more and more and more every day. That's our heart and that's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.